Welcome to Unfiltered, our newest program in our weekly healthcare podcast series. Joining us each month is Dr. Zubin Damanya, known to many as ZDog MD. For 25 minutes, he and Robbie will engage in unscripted and hard-hitting conversation about art, politics, entertainment, and much more. As nationally recognized physicians and healthcare policy experts, they'll apply the lessons they extract to medical practice. Then I'll pose a question to the two of them based on what I've heard. Robbie, why don't you kick it off? Hey, Zubin, how was your Thanksgiving? It was thankful. Uh, I really enjoyed it. We, uh, my, my wife was on call, which meant we didn't have to go through the full production of the meal. We went to like a half meal, which was absolutely great. I had 70% less bloat and 100% more gratitude. How about you? Uh, I had a great time. I was over at my sister's and had a bunch of folks there. Did you do anything special to communicate your gratitude to others? I texted a lot of people uh, that I felt were very, that I had been a little out of touch with and just just to convey how important they are uh, in my whole life and journey. Excellent. That sounds great. So I don't know if I ever told you that I became a doctor to avoid politics. (laughs) I didn't know that. Yeah. So I was in college. I was a philosophy major. And uh, my hero, who was a philosophy professor, uh, quite an excellent one, he went on to become the chairman at Reed College, didn't get tenure because of his political views. And I decided then that I want to do something that would have no politics. I mean, healthcare, it's about life and death. How could there be politics entwined inside that esteemed world. <laughs> and so that's truly why uh, at the age of 17, I decided that I'd become a doctor. And uh, uh, I learned stuff later on. Um, any thoughts on that observation and what we can do to minimize the politics in medicine? <laughs> well, you had me at philosophy major. That, that's what I, I don't remember you. Uh, you must have told me that, but that's 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 impressive. If I could go back in time and do it again, I would do philosophy instead of you know music and molecular biology. Although that's kind of philosophy in a way. Yeah, pol- <laughs> politics and medicine have been to some degree dance partners, you know, for a long time. But I think right now it actually just reflects how politicized everything is and how everything is so kind of divided. Although I'll say this, Robbie. I'm sensing something in the air, and and I might have said this at our last conversation, but but I really think something's shifting. I, I feel like people are starting to wake up to the fact that we are really divided over nothing substantial, in the sense that we're all trying to 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 find truth and goodness, and we we just have a slightly different spin on it. And um, medicine maybe will wake up, but we're as usual, we're about a decade or two behind the rest of the of the culture. Actually, I think that you're correct. And I think we saw that in the most recent midterms, that there was a lot more people, I'll say, in the middle rather than the 20 percent at both extremes who were yelling the loudest and typing with the all capitals and exclamation (laughs) points. But uh, there's a lot of people in the middle and they want to know the truth. And I, I, I think I think in many ways not talking about the specifics of the outcome, but the election process itself 
And of course, we didn't even have any uh, attempt, except in Nevada, to uh, just get rid of the entire voting and somehow have a different uh, method of selecting candidates based upon uh, maybe some sorcery or something else that could go into its place. But, you know, one of yeah. the things I... Sorry, go on. No, no, no. I was just going to say in Nevada, we have a lot of interesting things like uh, legalized uh, prostitution, among other things. So we are a special state. Oh, excellent. That's right. You yeah. were there. You can see yes. Still, still, <laughs> exactly. Legalized gambling, prostitution, so on. Yeah. Yep. One of the things that strikes me as I think about the politics is that you would think that the health status would drive the politics, by which I mean, if a lot of people didn't have coverage, then they would be attracted to a party that would be likely to give them the coverage. And we think about people voting their interests. You know, if there was a lot of uh, opioid addiction in a particular geography, you would think that that would be a very high concern. And yet we see almost the opposite. Tell me where you live, and I'll tell you your view on a problem, whether for you it's a particular medical challenge or not, doesn't seem to be the driver as opposed to where you happen to own a home and many cases grow up. Uh, this seems really strange to me. Yeah, it does. And again, all things seem strange if you uh, look at humans as rational actors that work in their best interests all the time. And uh, unfortunately, I think we're emotional, intuitive creatures that are the that are the product of our conditioning and our moral sort of uh, taste buds. And I think if your moral taste buds are are concerned about, say, liberty versus oppression or government controlling things, even though you're desperate for care and you need it and it would save your life or your family's life, I think through that moral lens, you'll see any sort of government, uh, quote unquote, intrusion into healthcare as something that's ad, you know adverse and, and you'll fight tooth and nail. There's also a, a tribal component on all sides of this, like you said, where you grow up. And I think where you grow up is some, some to some degree, it conditions how you are, but to another degree, you're kind of attracted to those places that are an expression of your own sort of moral matrix. Um, and so I think it's a, it's, it's a variety of those factors. And so, yeah, people do not necessarily vote or act or think in their best interests always, if you look at their best interests from that standpoint. But if you look at their best interests as a morality play, um, they almost always <laughs> do it in, 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 in that way, it seems, you know? Uh, so yeah, that, that's just my, my sense of this. I always love talking to you because I think about things that I hadn't contemplated before. About a decade ago, I did some research with a neurologist named uh, George. And George and I looked at uh, brain scans. And we looked at what happens when people get put into uh, situations of great threat or great opportunity. And what we found, George York and myself, was that there's actually a shift in our brain in terms of perception. In the last show, you mentioned the amygdala, the source of uh, great fear. And what you see is that the amygdala first gets stimulated. And then, as you mentioned, actually, in the last show, how the occipital lobes change. And we see things differently. And by see, it's not just a vision. It's all of our senses it's our perception of the world. And maybe some of these pieces 
are that there are fears or maybe hopes that people have that actually change their perception. And when you move someplace else where there's different fears and different hopes, different views of the world because of circumstances, then you change that perception. And maybe that accounts for some of this great shift in how we relate to each other or fail to do so. And maybe some of it is coming together to recognize that we may share in more common fears and more common hopes than we otherwise might realize. This is this is a really interesting insight, actually, Robbie, because it made me think of something you were saying. Sometimes I'll prompt you. This this prompted me because there is this idea that part of the reason we're there are many reasons why we're so divided and politicized nowadays. But one of them might be that you know your local scenario kind of conditions you and and vice versa, but. The global village that we have with social media is that now, you know, there's a saying, good good fences make good neighbors. When, when you know not much about someone else, they're actually all right. The more you know about them, sometimes it's like, hmm, I'm not sure about this. And when you take disparate ideas from different geographies that are evolved differently to suit that geography and you place them adjacent to each other, that's when the all caps starts happening <laughs> on Twitter because somebody that you never would have really known that well and you still don't know them well, but you know them in a social media way are hitting you with ideas that seem so antithetical to that moral palette that they do generate that fear. It's that fear of loss of identity, the fear of loss of self, that this is who I am, right? I'm this liberal or I'm this conservative or I'm this libertarian. And suddenly you're met with somebody who's giving you totally different ideas and it becomes instantly a kind of like, okay, fight or flight, I must defend this sort of identity. And what, what what may be happening is we're getting so used to social media now that we might be starting to transcend that initial shock and start to see what you're pointing out, which is, hey, you know, actually we're all in this game. And, and, and actually when you start to point out how divided we are, people start to wake up and go, yeah, we are kind of getting played by this, the, the news cycle and social media and this kind of thing. So it is really interesting. So let's, uh, let's try to meld the politics and the health uh, one of the areas that I'm increasingly concerned about is the LBGTQ population and how in this environment they're going to be able to get good health care around across the nation in all 50 states. Do you have any thoughts about, first of all, the hatred that seems to be often directed, uh, particularly at trans individuals, and how will they get their health care needs met? for an optimal medical perspective. Yeah, you know, and, and this is one of those things where, yeah, who said this? It was recently the World Cup and the Iranian media was, in, was questioning American soccer players. And they asked a, a black soccer player, they said, what's it like living in a country where, you know, you're discriminated against, you know, and obviously this is all politicized because of the whole Iran-US thing. And so this journalist was really trying to provoke this, uh, this guy to, to say, yeah, you know, yeah, you live in a super racist country where people are discriminated against because we keep accusing them of discriminating against women, which they do. And he said, you know, yeah, it is interesting, but I'll say this in America, one of the things I've noticed is we're constantly trying to get better. There's always some feeling that there is a kind of progress and that makes it much easier 
to to live here and and deal with it and and I want to be part of the change and I think with trans with LGBTQ plus and all of that I think that's also what we see like these issues were repressed previously now the repression is less and so we're seeing them come to the fore and this more it's it's louder in sort of the culture and so it, it's it's easy to feel that there's no progress, but I think that even the com- that the conversations are happening is progress. So it's a lot of it is ignorance, a lot of it is just lack of knowledge and uh, reactionism and and that kind of thing. And I, I think it it is going to continue to progress. I mean, just look at the bill now that that that's going through you know the Senate where they're you know going to codify protections on gay marriage. Say that would have been unheard of a decade ago. And uh, so so I'm actually optimistic, but you can't sort of, you can't stop working for it, right? You can't start to stop being part of the, the progress. Again, another interesting thought that I hadn't uh, had before about how as soon as you stop pushing forward, you slide back. And that mm. it's not a question of pushing forward always to make progress. It's pushing forward even to hold the progress that you have. And I can think of a lot of examples where as soon as people stop pushing, what we see is that everything slides back to where it came from, even though I can't find the rationality for why it started there. Yeah, I think it is a it, it's, it takes a collective effort and you'll always get resistance. And even understanding the resistance is a good thing. Like if you can see through other people's eyes and go, OK, what is it that what is this? Is this fear of other? Is this just misunderstanding? Is this a kind of projection where there's something about them that they feel isn't like as mainstream and they don't want, you know, they're projecting this onto others? You know, you wrote your book, uh, uncaring about medical culture. And I think (laughs) what I loved about that book is that you just shined a direct light on things like emotional repression, projection, denial, the things that we do in medicine that we're conditioned to do that are really fundamentally quite harmful to progress. And I think it's true in broader society as well. We have an epidemic, a pandemic of emotional repression and avoidance and projection as a result. Well, for any listeners who might not have read the book, let me point out that a part of why I focused on denial is that denial is what makes the medical culture great. How else do you go into the streets during the plague and take care of people knowing that it's a contagious disease, even though you have no idea what contagion means because it hasn't been yet discovered? Or how do you go into ERs and take care of patients early in the pandemic when you don't have protective gear? You have to deny the risk to yourself in order to put the patient First, but I also note that that tendency towards denial can spill over when there are things that we don't necessarily want to see. And I thought of that this week. I don't know if you noticed that the Merriam Webster word of the year is gaslighting. (laughs) Did you know that? I didn't know that, but it doesn't surprise me. (laughs) Yeah. And there's actually a lot of studies that have come out that says that it's very frequent. And actually, it's very frequent uh, in the LBGTQ plus population that we talked about when they go for care. It's actually very frequent when women go for care. I think many of the groups that have felt as though there's a certain level of discrimination, the truth is that in the doctor's office, it's there as well. The complaints are not taken as seriously. Problems that otherwise might be investigated are assumed to be simply psychological. And of course, in medicine, we deny that psychological is important as physical. And you go on and on and on. Your thoughts and what we can do about it. 
Yeah. I mean, again, this is our, this is our culture. You're right. I mean, and, and the gaslighting is an interesting thing because uh, <laughs> I think a lot of it is unconscious, right? Like people are doing it, not, not intentionally. It's a kind of a pattern of behavior. You know, you, 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 you try to make people feel like they're not right in the head because you're either projecting or denying something about the nature of their care. And I think it doesn't happen at a conscious level. So until you bring it into the light of awareness and you actually make it explicit uh, in a way that doesn't actually threaten the identity structures of the person you're talking with, that's the problem is a full frontal assault. And I think this is why in the culture right now, like the full frontal assault of progress on people who are more say conservative, it leads to a kind of a psychological reactance. And because again, we're going to defend our identity structures on all sides of it. So there's, there's a way to do that. I think that is much more compassionate and actually effective. So we have to, we have to focus on those strategies, this kind of alt middle strategies that I talk about, I think are, are more effective ways to bring progress that also is inclusive of, of people that feel they've also been left behind. The reason I like the word denial, although I'll have to tell you that there's some readers who didn't like it, but I like the word because of the point you just made. It's subconscious. We're yeah. not aware of it. We act in ways without being um, conscious that this is what we're doing. We don't see it. And that makes me think about all the problems that if you read the literature, it's so clear how important they are. Social determinants of health, racial disparities. You know, 10% of Americans are still uninsured. It used to be 16% before the ACA. And I don't hear a whole lot of conversation about that. You know, last night I, I teach at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. And last night, our guest speaker was a guy named Dr. Debbie Shetty, who's been on the podcast and whom I've spoken about before. Mm -hmm. And it was fascinating. You know, what he said is that he believes that India will be the first nation in which the health care you receive will not be dependent upon the amount of money that you have. In mm -hmm. his mind, in a nation of 1.4 billion people. And the podcast he did with me a couple of months ago is just so inspirational, it's great. And this just re reflected it. He worried about all, he worries about all 1.4 billion people and asks himself, how do we provide care to the last of, those, of that 1.4 billion that's as good as we provide to the best? And in our country, we tell ourselves we provide the same care to everyone. But when you look at the data, there's not a shred of truth about that. And I don't hear it being talked about in, in a broader context of people. I think people look at it very much by what do, what do I and my family get? What are the people that I'm most close with in my community get? And that's about as far as we look and we don't see all the implications. And it's, it's mainly about the system of healthcare, but I think it's really about the values of the nation. Yeah, I think what you nailed particularly 
explicitly there is the values of the nation. And, uh, you know, America really was kind of founded in this kind of oppositional uh, <laughs> way where it, it, there's almost an unwritten social contract that like, listen, 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 like we all hate rich people for being rich and having everything, but secretly we want to be that rich person. And one day we want to have those things. And we want that opportunity to do that, to live at the top of the hierarchy. And I think it's an unconscious kind of contract that has existed in the strata of American psyche for a long time. And that's why something as egalitarian as a, uh, you know, a universal coverage or everyone being treated equally in, in healthcare is something in the American psyche that reacts to that. And, you know, to be honest, I mean, my, my parents are from India. It is a, a vastly hierarchical, um, hor horrifically hierarchical. In fact, when I first visited, I was taken aback by the, the servant class there that was treated almost akin to slaves. I mean, and, and part of this is the sort of general caste system, but it, it's just all accepted there. And coming from America, it's, it was a shock. It was like, wait, wait, you can't treat other humans like this. So it's good to see Dev Shetty actually trying to unwind that because on some level, there's aspects of Indian culture that are so community focused and we're all in this together. And, and uh, so those things coexist. And so it can be a little schizophrenic at times. Well, I, I think that's very true what you said, because I've, I've been there too, and the disparities are massive. But the idea of, of, of asking, of starting with a, the question, how do we provide excellent care to all, I think is a fascinating path. It's the one that he's on. And interestingly enough, much of his answer is technology. Mm. And he says that because in a poor country, there's not enough resources. You know, if I have a, you know, a sack of rice and I give half of it to you because you're hungry, I only have a half sack left. If mm. I have a computer program that allows me to get great care and I give you a copy, I still have a computer program. And so it's a, um, uh, it's a resource that you can give away. It's like gratitude. I can give you mm. all the gratitude in the world and I haven't depleted myself at all. In fact, I've actually augmented my satisfaction, my happiness, my fulfillment. Mm. I think that's a beautiful way to put it. And it's very similar to thinking about compassion, like as opposed to empathy, empathy, feeling someone's pain, affective empathy as your own, that is a, that does exhaust you actually, but compassion, which is love and concern in the face of suffering and a, an unconditional kind of love that actually fills you with a kind of an elevation and it's inexhaustible. And so technology, absolutely. So there was ways to scale what we do in medicine that allow the human relationship at the center to kind of still flourish while scaling. And I think you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Um, I, and, and actually it's probably the, <laughs> it, it's gotta be central to our answer because we have resource limitation across the globe when it comes to high quality healthcare. So how do you scale it in that kind of way? In that, in that, I like that software analogy. It's actually very, a very good one. You can, one piece of software can, can serve infinite numbers of people. Absolutely. So let me ask you a slightly tangential question, but it still is this split in society that um, it's been bothering me ever since I read the Pew Research study on it about two weeks ago, and I've wanted to ask you about it. So in this study, only 41% of people, this was 12,000 individuals they surveyed, thought that scientific experts are better than others at making policy decisions about scientific issues. And that negative view is held by both Democrats 
and Republicans. Mm. You know, we've looked at this question of scientific expertise throughout COVID-19. And we've certainly come to the conclusion that those with the scientific backgrounds aren't necessarily the ones that we should be trusting. And I wonder your thoughts. So you've been right in the middle of this um, scrum, if you want to think about it in that way, <laughs> over this issue of the role of the expert as we look at whether you want to talk about COVID or just healthcare policy in general. So, I, yeah, this is something that really, like you said, I've been kind of in the middle of it. And 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 this is the thing, like I have always kind of worked hard early pre-pandemic, especially to defend the role of expertise in healthcare because it is invaluable. Like when you're talking about, you know, recommending a type of surgery, having an interaction with a patient where it's an interpretive dance of their hopes, dreams, and fears, and goals, and your knowledge, the your knowledge component is a very important part of the equation, right? Now, I think what's happened here, though, is and the fact that Democrats and Republicans are both saying this makes you think also of China. So here you have, say, let's say a scientific technocracy autocracy ruling class that says, you know what, we can we can actually literally prevent deaths by locking people in their homes. And the number of deaths that result from that will be less than the number of deaths that happen from COVID. And to some degree, so far, they've proven themselves correct because they have the low, lowest per capita, if you believe their numbers, per capita death rate from COVID. But they've had to do these draconian things about uh, policy-wise. And just now people are standing up and saying, you know what, enough is enough. And I think what, what humans here are saying in America are saying is, yeah, it's, it's or they're not saying this explicitly, but I think this is the, the motivation. Expertise is great and wonderful, but when it comes to policy, we actually want to determine what our values say in the setting of that knowledge. So it may be that, you know, we, 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 you could prevent all this COVID, but we're actually more interested in going out to eat, seeing our friends without masks, um, not having our kids, you know, be out of school, these kind of things. And so that disjunction between values, which are what politics tries to apply or policy and and scientific expertise, I think, has manifest now with people saying, you know what, I don't trust these guys to make policy, and um, so I, I think that's what's happening now. I'm I'm curious what you think, but that's been my 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 feeling. And and the problem is they're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So now they're like, well, I don't trust these guys to tell me I should vaccinate my children against mumps because they stay, you know, the, the way they managed COVID, I felt was incompatible with my values. What are they telling me about mandates for childhood vaccines? So it's really causing all this collateral damage to public health now. No, I, I really love that because, you know, as you know, I've been focusing a lot the past year on these rules of healthcare that I believe many of which need to be broken. And we have mm. maybe the strongest rule, which is to save a life at any cost. And at any cost means any cost. If kids lose a year of school, that's a cost to save one life or two lives or three lives. Now, we could spend a lot of time debating this issue. It's certainly been debated by Talmudic scholars across history. But I think at some point, we have to accept that death is a reality that we can't overcome. And we probably need to take a broader view of what that means. What's the impact of people's lives of missing a year of education? What's it going to mean for them and their families? How many people are going to die, even though we won't know exactly who they are 
as a result of that, because of their family socioeconomic situations, those conversations never penetrate into medicine. Oh, you you nailed it, man. And 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 again, it gets to get to that root of what you wrote about an uncaring. It's our denial, which again can be an adaptive denial. It's unconscious about that that death is um, something that is inevitable, and that it's not necessarily the worst enemy. And and it has to do with your values. So, Dr. Monica Gandhi, an infectious disease specialist at UCSF, who's been on my show several times, is coming again on Sunday or Saturday. She she she. Early in the pandemic, we started doing a series of shows where we were really trying to talk people off the ledge a little bit and talk about these issues. And she said to me, and I don't, and she said this on camera eventually, but initially she told me off camera that, you know, she had lost her husband, who was roughly her age, you know, late 40s, early 50s, uh, to cancer right before the pandemic. And he was a cardiologist, worked super hard, you know, who knows if it was radiation exposure or what, but he had a head and neck cancer and he died. And she has two young sons and she's raising them alone now and the pandemic hits and she's watching people, uh, the medical system treating death like it is the worst possible thing in the universe relative to actually living your life. And it became a kind of passion for her to say, listen, we all look at risk differently. Here's how you can look at risk here rather than just save a life at any cost. And uh, that was part of her motivation. And again, she was woken up by this tragedy that hit her and her family. and. Sometimes it takes something that horrible to pull the rug out of your under, under your denial, um, and and you shouldn't have to have that, right? We ought to be cognizant of this, you know, as a society and as individuals in healthcare. But but it's not been part of our our sort of uh, process. Let me ask you one last question. It's one question that I got asked. I was keynoting a large event a couple of weeks ago, and you know, at the end you have the Q and A, and a individual stood up wasn't a physician, and asked me whether with more and more doctors becoming employees, whether we're seeing, and he used the phrase, loss of motivation to drive change, whether medicine is just similar to everyone else with quiet quitting and burnout and a sense that dedication to work isn't worth the effort and the energy, or whether the traditional uh, purpose and mission of medicine still persists. You have probably the broadest network of millions of people who follow you and communicate with you. What do you think? How would you answer that question? Uh, that's a great question. And, and from the standpoint of, say, an independent physician, you might ask that question. From a standpoint of an employed physician, you might not know anything differently. But this is what I, this is, this is my take. Hey, uh, Remember when we didn't have a lot of employed physicians? How much change, progress, innovation, and transformation did we get? Zero. It's the same. It's the same thing that they're all conditioned by their incentives, by their training, by inertia, by fear, and the employed physicians have a different set of conditioning and inertia and fear. But I don't think it's it's vastly different than the old way of doing things in terms of generating innovation. I think if you want to find the roots of our of our failure to innovate or to feel invested in the change, I think it goes right to medical school, which you've talked about. I mean, we're basically trained to, we're conditioned to memorize facts, uh, half of which are eventually shown to be untrue, uh, but they don't tell you which half because they don't know. And then you're conditioned to obey authority in the second two years, and you're afraid you're going to hurt someone and you don't want to rock the boat. And so it, it doesn't matter. You come out with that conditioning. You're, you're really trained that way. So 
employed or not employed, you know, at least if, if you're an employed physician, you have this network of support and you have an organization theoretically that could support you, or it, it could be seen to be trying to harm you or control you. But it, a lot of it is our own perspective until we kind of wake up to what we're repressing, denying, projecting, and so on in our own conditioning, our system is going to be very unlikely to change because our organizations are epiphenomenon of, of who we are. My answer was that no. I, what I see is physicians uh, are just as motivated to want to make medicine better, just as motivated to want to do the best for patients. They're frustrated by the system. They're frustrated by the inability to make change happen. And sometimes when you're frustrated, you lose the energy needed to try to drive change. But I still believe, and maybe I'm being too optimistic, which is why I asked you, or maybe just too idealistic, that the people who go into medicine are motivated by the right reasons, and that given the opportunity, they would push hard on the, uh, uh, the block, the cart, whatever you want to be saying it to be, to move it forward and to make it accelerate at an ever faster rate. Oh, I think you're absolutely right, given the opportunity. And when they see these little cracks, um, you know, like we all think about our best day in, in medicine, and it's always this kind of connectedness. It's always this kind of autonomy, tools, teams, trust, and the patient. And it just kind of is a flow state. And I think if you give people more opportunities to actualize those flow states, show them bright spots where these things are working and kind of just point directionally because we're all kind of know where we kind of generally want to be. We just don't necessarily know how to get there. I think things will start there. It's inevitable. The change is already happening. It's like what we said earlier in the thing. I, I sense the shift in the air. I think the same thing is happening in medicine. There's huge intractable seeming problems, but it's always that way before the caterpillar spins the chrysalis and the transformation happens that you could never have predicted. So I, I, I think I'm with you on the on the optimism. I may be less of an idealist in this sense that it's going to be a lot more brutal, I think, uh, and people will feel a certain way about it that's very negative. But I think in, it, it's inevitably going to go in in a in a good place if we keep if we keep on the direction. I love it because I'm more of an idealist. I think people have all the right motivation. I'm a little bit less of an optimist because I think the hurdles are so tall that uh, it's going to take a massive amount of energy to make change happen. But with that, let's turn it over to Jeremy for his question to us. And I can't wait to have the next opportunity to be able to uh, learn from your experience and to have new views into the world. Oh, likewise. When it comes to politics, many voters on both sides of the aisle uh, seem to think that the elected officials on their side are fighting for them when it comes to health care, while believing the other side is making health care uh, worse for both them and society, whether it's the issue of abortion, Medicare, drug pricing, transgender issues, et cetera. And I would say that the hot issue on everyone's mind right now is freedom of speech versus censoring what some people consider disinformation or hateful speech on social media. What I really want to ask, though, is a, is for a reality check from both of you. When there is so much money in politics via campaign, financing, lobbying, et cetera, coming into both Republicans and Democrats from big pharma, health insurance companies, health tech companies, et cetera, is either side really fighting for the best interests of lower and middle class voters when it comes to health care issues, or are they just focusing on keeping these big and influential health care companies happy? 
Oh, I'd love to defer to Robbie first on this one because I'm just, I'm dying of curiosity to hear your take. I think, Jeremy, you're raising two separate issues. I think the first issue is relative to the healthcare system. And uh, a professor that I teach with, Robert Bergelman at Stanford, you know, talks about medicine as being a uh, super unmoving industry. Nothing changes over time. And he doesn't understand why that is the case. And I think you've described the reason, which is there are so many people in it, around it, impacted by it, making money from it, for whom change is not what they want. And they have the power and they have the money to be able to make stability be the uh, example uh, that sits within it. In contrast, I think that within the uh, healthcare itself, that the politics uh, are, that the money is, is not the force that's uh, restraining change. Um, I think that it's within the people itself, it's the difficulty of making that change happen. And I think it's the amount of time that it takes. And I just think that um, it's too much. And that's why I'm a big believer that the change will come not through the political process, because I think that will be blocked by the money forces that exist, but it's going to come actually through the economics. And that's why I'm a big believer that it's going to be the retail forces that will drive it, the Amazons of the world and the CVSs of the world, the Walmarts of the world that are going to make the change happen. I think they're going to drive it, not necessarily out of some uh, commitment to improving the health of people. They're going to drive it out of a profit motive, but I think that it will create a, a more positive change for the country. At least that's my optimism. And then I think that once physicians get behind it, and nurses get behind it, and patients get behind it, and they can see an improvement to happen, that there will be what uh, Zubin's talked about, this very major shift suddenly, and what seemed impossible will now, and then seem possible, now will seem inevitable. Yeah, and and I think, you know, Upton Sinclair, I think it was, who said, uh, you know, it's impossible to make a man believe something if his salary depends on him not believing it. And I think in medicine, for many people, um, our salaries depend on us not believing, not changing to some degree. And that includes big legacy players like pharma and insurance companies and those kind of things. And politics just feeds right into that. And money is all the currency, the lifeblood of that. But once, like, like Robbie says, once the <laughs> realities of the economics start to click in and you do have these sort of disruptive agents like Amazon kind of pushing things like our old uh, turntable Iora health model that's now part of Amazon. When those are normalized and consumers, the patients are able to kind of vote with their feet a little bit, you'll start to see change and, and it will pull in, especially the younger generation of healthcare professionals who have been kind of hungry for this kind of change. They want to do the right thing. They are idealistic and given an opportunity to to practice in that kind of world, they'll they'll take it. So it's actually very, very, very encouraging. I think the shift will happen. Now, the last pitch I'll give is personal 
<laughs> trans and i always say this and i'm, I'm sure i can feel i this is probably not true but i can feel robbie rolling his eyes at me it, it is that people have to wake up to to their own transformation they have to see that this sort of egoic striving that we've always been conditioned to do is a bit of an illusion and once we see past that we do emerge a world where that is actualized in a way that it's very hard to predict but it'll definitely be better than what we're going through now we hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. If you want information on healthcare topics, you can visit Robbie's website at robertperlmd.com or visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare's newest series, Unfiltered, with Dr. Robert Pearl, Jeremy Kaur, and Dr. Zubin Damania. Have a great day.